So we're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We had this teaching last week on head coverings, which seems on the surface to be very culturally conditioned and irrelevant. But as we saw, this idea of authority and respect and not giving offense uh, all factors into it. And so all of those things are important. I'm not going to get back into that teaching. You can look at last week's uh, study if you would like to. But we're going to start in verse 17 this week. My focus is going to be verses 17 through 19. He also talks about the Lord's Supper, um, but it's really the way he's talking about it is an application or an example of uh, the problem he's having with these guys. So um, let's. Uh, I'm going to read uh, verses 17 through 22. This is the English Standard Version. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Unusual thought there, but we'll get back to it. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? You, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humili humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, remember, in this chapter, he started by saying, I commend you for holding to the traditions that I passed along, right? So he's not always rebuking them or admonishing them, but here he's giving an example of something that has been reported to him that uh, he admonishes them for. Now, if you recall, at the very beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we saw that there were divisions among them. Uh, they, were, they were dividing uh, according to leaders that they purportedly uh, followed. I am of Peter, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. And so we see that there were consistent problems with division in the Corinthian church. And friends, this is why this is so relevant for us today. Our country is more divided than I have ever seen it. And it is something that is being promoted. Division is being promoted. If you don't follow this leader or these people, then you are a racist. If you don't follow this leader or these people, then you are unpatriotic. And uh, it's, uh, it's ridiculous. If you just sit down and talk to people and stay away from the media, you can talk to people that obviously have diverse political opinions and get along just fine. I was sitting over at Intrinsic, and I have an idea where people's politics lie. I mean, I don't, when I'm over there, we don't sit around and talk about politics. But I was sitting there with two other men and uh, a lady. And it was obvious to me that the lady's politics leaned further to the left than one man. And then the other man is kind of more in the center. And so we're dancing around talking about these different issues and you know, I could tell when one person, you know, didn't agree, but they didn't start screaming and yelling and calling the other two people idiots and you're wrong and you're not a patriot or you're a racist or we didn't do that. Just had a conversation. You know, it's uh, we don't have to be that way. And unfortunately, I think because of the way our 
our conversations are set up now via text and Facebook and these sorts of things, there's this, this buffer, right? This space between you and the people you're communicating with. So there's nobody right here in your face. And so you just say, well, I think this. Well, I think that. Well, no, you're wrong. You're stupid. You know, but this goes all the way back to the days before social media. I can remember, you know, getting in trouble myself by sending out bulk emails that were, I didn't, you know, I was just trying to, you know, I thought preach the word, but I, I guess I was coming across too harshly and so forth. And it was perceived as back then it was called flaming somebody, right? You flame them, right? You, you send out a, a harsh text or, and this is even before texting, this was email. Um, and we had a message board. Our church has been online forever, um, but we had a message board and that was the closest to social media. Basically, you just had these groups of discussions, you know, where people would opt in. You know, and honestly, it was more straightforward than Facebook. You think that if you post something on Facebook, everybody sees it. They do not. They do not. Facebook decides what's in your timeline. Now, you can force it. You can go in and say, okay, I'm following this person and I want to see everything that they post. And then you will. But see, that's not the case with everybody. You, if you're on Facebook, everybody hasn't chosen to say, hey, I want to hear every single thing that he says, right? And then it may also be that, you know, I've had days when I've posted like six or seven different things and, you know, people that were originally following me and getting all that are like, oh my goodness, is this all, this guy, you know, is he the only one I hear anything from? And so all they have to do is hit unfollow. Then they're, they're still your friend, but they're not going to see anything that you post on their timeline. You know, so yeah, we, we all, it's kind of, unfollowing would be akin to you're sitting in a room full of people and there's one person that's dominating the conversation and you get, you're getting tired of hearing them. So you just get up and leave the room. That's <laughs> basically what it is. That's essentially the, the and I have unfollowed a bunch of people because the, I don't want to unfriend them, but they're just like they're heavy handed on one issue all the time. They're constantly preaching about. And I'm like, you know, enough, enough. I get it. I get it. Right. You're, you're literally preaching to the choir. Because none of these people, you know, are probably going to disagree with you. Because the ones that disagree with you have either unfollowed you or unfriended you a long time ago. So I came to see a long time ago that social media has a benefit, but the benefit is not in winning, you know, people to your side. Basically, like attracts like, and all these people talk alike, and you know, talk about the same things. And I had a variety of friends on my timeline for a long time. I had atheists and people that leaned to the left and whatever. But I'm telling you, in the wake of doggone Trump, I mean, he's like a lightning rod. And there was just this division that deepened. There was already division, but there was this division that deepened. And it's like all of those people. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, it was like all of the people that were completely scared to death about this thing and think that you need to wear three masks and, you know, uh, this is even before vaccinations. And uh, I, yeah, it's, that's the way it happened. But we can have small groups and we can have relationships with people that are genuine relationships. I'm telling you, a Facebook friend is not a friend, right? That's more akin to 
you know, an associate or uh, an acquaintance, right? This is, that's just not, it's not real interaction. Real interaction is when we sit down together. In fact, I mean, there's severe limitations when you're talking to somebody on the phone. And certainly any form of written communication, as important as written communication is, can be misunderstood. If you have a problem with somebody, don't try to hash it out via text. You just, it's too easy to just, you know, and then say something that you regret, right? Or you, you can't tell tone in a text. I guess that's the positive thing behind the emojis, right? Is that you can always, you know, stick a little emoji in there that helps them to understand the tone of your, of your text. So, you're, you know, you say something and you're worried that they might have taken that, like, the wrong way. So then you slap a smiley emoji on there and they're like, oh, okay, well, he didn't mean that, right? So, um, well, in the previous passage, uh, Paul instructs the Corinthians about the visible symbol of submission, the, the head coverings, and the preservation of women wearing the veil. He had begun by commending them for adhering to his teaching. Now, in the present passage, he begins by stating that he does not commend them, and then he gives strong correction and repeats that he does not commend them. So that's, he brackets this. I do not commend you. I do not commend you. He's not happy with them at all. So apparently, there was a wanton disregard for the purpose and the sacred nature of the Lord's Supper. In addition to this, social and economic injustice were clearly on display, which is in diametric opposition to the Christian teaching of equality among all believers. Now, we should understand that the early church met in homes. It wasn't, you know, hey, let's do a small group like we're doing. That's where they met, right? Now, the church, when it first started, they gathered in the temple, but they still went from house to house. So the church was always, always historically, was a, a house church movement. And so uh, the Apostle Paul would go, he would go to the synagogue. That's where all of the Jewish people gathered. He would preach to them and offer them the gospel first. And then those that chose to believe would begin meeting uh, in homes because the whole synagogue would not convert and you know, everybody just meet there. So they would start meeting in these homes and there would be an elder or a group of elders typically that would be over those different homes, right? So they would gather in someone's home, presumably someone who had a larger house, and they uh, partook of the Lord's Supper regularly. So we need to do that. I keep saying that we need to do it more often and then I don't. Honestly, the pandemic has had something to do with that. Um, but uh, we'll do the Lord's Supper again soon, probably very soon, because we're about to talk about it uh, in 1 Corinthians here. But we need, to, we need to establish clearly what the church is, right? Um, I'm very thankful for this building. I'm thankful that we have been able to continue to stay here. Um, it's got its weaknesses, but every building has its weaknesses. Uh, it's a great centralized location for us to meet even though people have like gone to the four winds now than the, where they they have moved because uh, the the new housing developments the least that are affordable are further east from us and further north from us right but what is the church it's not this building um, it's those who are called out from the world right the, the word church in Greek is ecclesia we get the word church in English from the German word Kirche, Kirche, and it refers to a building, an edifice. And that, in a lot of people's mind, is the church. 
Oh, well, we're going to go to the church. We're going to church. But see, it's about being the church. Now, being the church requires people to gather. There is also a tendency. So there's a tendency for people to think, okay, we're going to church, all right? But there's also, there's another tendency for people to say, um, you know, well, I don't need to go to church. You know, the church is everywhere. Well, you know, I'm spiritual. We're all Christians. And, you know, we're just going to do our thing and, you know, read the Bible and go to the lake and all these sorts of things. But the church gathers, right? Um, we're called out from the world. Ekklesia is the Greek word. Ek, meaning out. And then uh, the, the Greek word kaleo means to call, the called out. That's what it means. We're called out from the world and then we're called together. We're called out and called together. That's the church, right? We're called out of the world to worship the one true God. And we do that, sure we do that while we're in the world, scattered and preaching the gospel. But we gather to worship in communities, plural, of faith. Um, we gather to learn Christ's teachings and to share with one another and to pray and to hold each other accountable in following Christ. So. In our Life All Church Covenant, we affirm this. Uh, we say when somebody joins our church, we uh, gather here at the front and we say this covenant. I have different members of our church read segments of the covenant, and then the new people say their amen. But here's a, from a section of our covenant. We agree to meet together faithfully, to worship the one true God in the spirit and in truth, to pray to have our minds renewed by learning God's written word, the Bible, to learn how to live life well by becoming more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's very clarifying. That's who we are. That's what we do, right? So this is why I believe small groups are important in our church. The last two functions of the church happen sporadically, if at all, when people only attend worship services. Um, and when they maybe only attend Bible studies. We need to share our lives with each other and pray for each other and hold each other accountable for following Christ. Everything we're doing when we gather is encouragement and, and equipping to do when we are on our own or in our homes, right? So that said, we see right here in Corinth, there is a danger with small group meetings. And we've seen that in our church over the, the years. We've been in existence for 22 years now. And we had an extensive small group ministry when we first started. Um, I've always wanted us to have small groups. And over the last decade, it's just been like unto impossible to get people to consistently meet, except for a couple of different homes. Um, but these they were more vital when our church started because everybody was single and they were looking for fellowship. Now, many people, not everybody, many people are married. The people that were at least parts of these small groups originally, they're married, they have kids, they have busy lives. They want at least one day off and you know they're continuing to meet in these small groups and it is difficult. But over this time period that we've been in existence, um, we've seen some challenges uh, where small groups kind of go their own direction, get their own ideas. And I, I can remember one small group. It was a group of people that I considered to be leaders at this, you know, in this church. Um, 
They were all strong supporters of our church. But they gradually moved further and further and further until they all left, every last one of them. That entire home, I can remember going to their home and meeting all these wonderful people, and they're gone. They are all gone. So small groups can strengthen the church or they can weaken the church. And this is why some churches won't do small groups that meet anywhere other than Bible study or Sunday school at the church because they can't predict what's going to happen in those meetings. What are those people going to say? What are they going to do? But see, the reality is if people aren't listening to the teaching at church, they're going to do what they want to do anyway, right? So, um, you know, if the church is structured in such a way that that group could essentially come in, take over, and cause problems, then it's more of a problem. If they leave, well, the group that I'm referring to that left, and it took about a year for them to all leave, but they were strong financial supporters of this church, and we, we continue, we have until recently have continued to have some financial struggles because all of those folks pulled the plug, right? So small groups are important, and small groups are really, I think, as important as the you know, the main gathering, if you get them going and you get them going the right direction. And the reason I mention that is because what we're dealing with here is small groups, right? He's talking about people meeting in these homes and they're meeting for fellowship and they're meeting for prayer and they're meeting to observe the Lord's Supper. But what does he see happening? He sees these divisions among the people. Now, interestingly, he's not talking about doctrinal division here or theological division here. He's talking about economic division. There are people who are poor and there are people who are rich. And the people who are rich were bringing these big sumptuous feasts and wine and, and all of this to the meeting, but they weren't sharing it. I am not kidding. So when we have a fellowship here, anybody can come and anybody can eat, right? So uh, when we had our fall festival, I think we had more people that were, it was warmer, and there were more people that were, that were living kind of on the square over here. And we had those folks and folks that come regularly and everybody, everybody eats. Everybody eats. We don't say, hey, whoa, 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 did you bring anything to the potluck? Well, then you can't eat. No, everybody eats. We share with everybody. But that's not what's happening, Okay. It was this family, this group, brought their rich feast, and they ate, and they overate, and they got drunk. And then poor people came in, right? Because the church has always been a gathering of every socioeconomic status, right? Poor, rich, whatever. But they weren't sharing. The poor came in, and, you know, they're over there you know, with a crust of bread or something like that waiting for the worship service. This is ridiculous right? But people can have this kind of attitude, even in church today, right? He says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He said, it's, you're not strengthening each other. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So we've already observed uh, the divisions that were evident in the church. It was the first issue that Paul addressed from chapter one uh, through chapter three. Here's, here's a chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he started off by saying, don't divide by going to different leaders, but also now he's telling them, don't divide because some of you are rich and some of you are poor. So after being taught, and now on the other side of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, um, these spirit-filled leaders that these folks are saying they're following would never have countenanced somebody following them. Now, um, I should say this. When there is no clear leader recognized, division occurs. This is not an effort to say there should be no leader, right? Um, whenever I talk to uh, a church and, you know, maybe I'm talking to a church that uh, is restructuring or they're looking for leadership or whatever, um, you know, their pastor has left, okay? So I came to um, First Baptist Church, not here in Garland, but uh, a First Baptist Church here locally many, many years ago, and they had split. The church had split. And I was unaware of this, blissfully unaware of this. I had been called to the church by the pastor that had recently come to that church. But what I found after that pastor called me to the church is that the church had split because they had gotten upset with the previous pastor. And when I tried to just really dig down to what the problem was, there was just nothing specific. It just seemed that an increasing number of people in that church just didn't like the guy, right? He did this wrong or he did that wrong, but nothing was wrong, wrong. It was just, they just didn't like him. And so there was a division and a huge group just took their dollies and dishes and started meeting over at the high school. And they took the youth pastor of the church and made him their pastor. And they, it had its own name, okay? Well, the people who were left at the original church and the original building were the ones that called a new pastor. Because once that happened, the pastor that the, all these folks were in an argument over um, ended up resigning. So they called a new pastor. And he came to Southwestern Seminary, looked over the resumes, and I was one of the people that they were interested in. I came to the church and they called me to be the youth pastor. Um, but in every church, somebody is in charge. There's a leader. You might go to a Baptist church and they have a congregational form of government, right? Which means that the congregation votes on everything. They have monthly business meetings, which can, you know, be raucous. I mean, yeah, you can go to a, a Baptist business meeting and think, is this a church? <laughs> you know, or is this a brawl? Uh, because, I mean, you just, all these different voices. Well, I think, and I think, and I think it's like being on social media, right? Um, it's like going to a, a city council, you know, in any town. I mean, go to Dallas, Garland, but particularly smaller cities. And, you know, you just, you'll have, sections, divisions, groups within the city council, and they're, you know, they're at odds with one another. And um, we're seeing this uh, with school boards 
and their citizenry, right? Because they, in the wake of the, the George Floyd incident and this incredible amount of momentum that the, the Black Lives Matter movement gained, they started pulling in this teaching from a uh, uh, academia called the critical race theory. And I mean, I'm not going to get into the details of that, but it is, um, it is not Christian. Let's just put it that way. And in my estimation, and I'm not alone in this, it commits the very sin that it asserts uh, th this white majority are committing, which is racism. Um, so if you want to read more information about that and a Christian response to it, I can commend the book Fault Lines to you by Vadi Bauckham Jr. And uh, he addresses this. And uh, I think that he does a masterful job. He's, uh, he's a minister, but he has a unique background. He grew up in South Central LA. Uh, he was really a black activist for a period of time and then became a Christian and just became stronger and stronger in his faith and then was called to preach. Um, and now he actually is the president of a seminary in Africa. And I can't remember where in Africa, but uh, he still has uh, interaction with the states and he's written this book. Um, but he also has a degree in sociology, so he understands the underpinnings of this, right? But what I'm taking a little bit of a diversion here to say is that um, school boards have been um, mandating critical race theory uh, being taught in their schools. And so parents have come to those board meetings and they have, you know, registered their objection. Folks, this got so bad that the, apparently, I didn't realize this before all this went down, there's a National Association of School Boards, and they all pay in to this national organization. And there was enough pushback from parents in these communities that uh, the National Association of School Boards, I think that was NASB, I think that's what it's called, uh, in association with our federal government and Merrick Garland, we're calling these parents terrorists. I am not kidding you. The federal government was going to come down on parents as homegrown terrorists. Well, what ended up happening is that blew up in their face. And so now the National Association of, of School Boards has had fully one-third of the school boards that were originally supporting them have withdrawn support. Many of those school boards have lost uh, board members and presidents and so forth, right? Um, a large number of major school districts all over the country, but particularly here in Texas, have, have or are losing I say school board, I'm sorry, uh, school districts are losing their superintendents, right? DISD superintendent just quit, right? Retiring. Uh, you, you can just look across the board. This intense push to, you know, create a, a mindset of really what is essentially bigotry within our schools has caused pushback, right? So, when there's no um, 
there's no recognized leader. There's, there's no person that is um, s- respected among people. They, they divide, they fight, they argue. This is what uh, you know, our problem is in this country. Half the country or more hated Trump. Now half the country or more hates Biden. There's, there's an unwillingness to follow these leaders, right? So there, there needs to be a leader, right? Um, once Paul left Corinth, the people began to align themselves with other leaders other than Paul. Now remember, when we started this chapter, the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what we need. We need humble, Christ-honoring, Christ-following leaders. And then they may tell us things that we don't like. They may make mistakes. But on the whole, you're like, no, he's following Jesus, so I can follow him. And as soon as he stops following Jesus, I'm going to stop following him. As soon as I stop preaching the word and stop following Jesus, you need to make for the exit and find another place, right? But that hasn't happened in 40 plus years of ministry, so it's not going to start happening now. Um, But these folks immediately began aligning themselves with other leaders. Um, None of the leaders that they were aligning themselves with would have agreed with these divided loyalties or competition about leadership. Jesus' disciples, if you read the Gospels, Jesus' disciples argued among themselves on a number of occasions about what? Who was the greatest, right? It's it's amazing. There's there's one account and Mark and Jesus says, what were you discussing? And they were embarrassed and they didn't want to say anything because they were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. Can you imagine? You're following Jesus and you're not following Jesus. You're following Jesus. Oh, we can't imagine because it's happening all the time around us, right? Who's the greatest? Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Then he demonstrated this kind of servant approach to life and leadership at the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper when he took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around himself, and washed the dirty feet of the disciples. He led by example. He said, I want you to be a servant. Now watch me, right? So listen to, this is John 13, 14 through 17, which uh, gives the, uh, the admonition out of that account. So remember, he's just finished washing their feet. So if I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you also would do just as I did for, tru- uh, for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, there are churches that continue to take what Jesus said here literally, and they literally wash each other's feet. They, they make it like the third ordinance, right? They practice baptism, they practice the Lord's Supper, and they practice foot washing. Primitive Baptists do this. Um, But we wear shoes now. We don't walk around on dirt roads. And when we eat, we sit with our feet under the table and our hands above the table. Foot washing doesn't have the the symbolism any more than wearing a veil or a head covering has the symbolism that it did at this time. But the lesson is still the same. Serve one another do the dirty job, right? So I, you know, it's interesting to me how often I will walk around this church and, you know, I will see like a face mask and trash and this and that and the other thing. 
And if I don't pick it up, it's going to be there for days. Nobody's going to pick that up, right? You know, people leave trash and whatever all around in the church here. You know, Miss Mary comes and cleans it all up on Saturday. But the thing is, you know, honestly, the dirty job is just you see something and you just do it, right? And I'm not good at it. I'm not going to try to say, you know, follow me in this respect or regard as I follow Christ because I'm not good at it. You know, our toilets in this church are a constant source of consternation to me because they never want to continue to work. I've replaced all the hardware in two thirds of these toilets and they still want to leak and do all this other stuff. Toilets are horrible to try to deal with. They're horrible. They are horrible. So, and you know, I had to have Miss Charlotte tell me that there was, you know, another problem with one of our toilets in here. So now I've replaced all of the handles on those toilets, ladies. I've replaced the, the little flappers in those toilets. Hopefully, for now, they'll keep working. Uh, but that is a, an example of a job that I overlooked and I don't want to do and I hate. I hate it. I hate it, right? I hate doing dishes. It's because when I was a kid, I was made to do dishes. It's not hard. But, you know, my mom, bless her, and she should have done this. I'm glad she did, that she was not abusing me. You know, I said, why can't we have a dishwasher? <laughs> and my mom says, we do, we have one, it's you. <laughs> you know, but I can remember, I hated washing dishes, and I would wash dishes, and I would, you know, stack them over here to dry, and then the inspection would happen. Come in, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> to wash all the dishes again. You know, so there's dirty jobs that you don't like to do either. Right. But if we're going to be servant leaders, we don't just say, well, that's why we have kids. <laughs> you get to do all the dirty jobs. No, we lead the way. Now, that doesn't mean let your I've seen too many cases in our day where people don't have their kids doing anything. I'm thinking, no, no, my kid would be working right now in this house, cleaning this house up doing just what I had to do. I had to mow the lawn. I had to wash the dishes. I had to sweep the floor. This is not abusive. This is teaching your child responsibility. This is what should be done. And then when your kids grow up, they're workers. They're not lazy. They're not sitting around expecting someone to come and serve them, right? Um, well, this is the type of leader that you and I need to be. I think that that's an example of how servant leadership plays out. Don't expect somebody else to do it. Just do it. That's all there is to it. Just do it. Amen. Right? You know, I mean, I know all of y'all, a lot, lot of y'all, all of y'all parents in here. I mean, you taught your kids to pick up after themselves, right? You didn't just walk around the house picking up all their, their you know, dirty laundry and whatever. It's like, no, no, you pick it up. That's another thing. I learned to do my laundry. My mom's like, there's the washing machine. Here's the soap. There's the dryer. Or back then it was hang it out, hang it outside, right? Yeah, I lived in Arizona, so. And you know, by the way, your clothes smell really great when you dry them outside. But in Texas, since it's cold like this, yeah, your clothes are gonna blow away in that wind that we just had. So, divisions obviously were evident when the Corinthians gathered for worship. However, as we'll see in a moment, social and economic divisions were evident. The result was not worship or healthy fellowship. So just because you gather together doesn't mean it's worship or fellowship. Um, James observed, uh, James, the writer of the book of James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church 
and the half-brother of Jesus, that James. He observed the same thing, and he responded with a similar rebuke. Listen to what James says. This is James 2, verses 1 through 9. My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and is dressed in bright clothes, and a poor man in dirty clothes also comes in, and you pay attention, or pay special attention, excuse me, to the one who is wearing the bright clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over here, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. So there, again, there's this division in the church over social distinctions, right? In this case, socioeconomic status, as we would call it, the rich versus the poor and so forth. Um, there's a lot in the prophets about this in the Old Testament, uh, about treating people with kindness, with, uh, with justice. What is justice? Fundamentally, justice is treating everybody fairly, right? So there's a lot today that is said uh, about equity, and this word has kind of replaced justice or social justice, and this factors into critical social theory, which critical race theory is just part of that. Um, you know, in the end, justice is doing to others as you would have them doing to you. That's justice. You are responsible for you. You're not responsible for everybody else. You're responsible for you. And you love your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor is anybody that's nearby. So Jesus gave the example of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan encountered some, someone on the road. It wasn't his neighbor. This is presumably you know, a Jewish person that had been waylaid on the road. This is a Samaritan. They didn't live anywhere. They didn't live anywhere near each other, right? A neighbor, we would think of a neighbor, well, this is the person that lives next door across the street. But a neighbor is anybody that's nearby. The Samaritan was traveling and he encountered this injured man on the road. Thus, he was nearby and he became his neighbor. And he treated him the way he wanted to be treated. That is, the Samaritan treated this injured man the way he would want to be treated. He had money and he had a mode of transportation. So he loaded the man up on his, his animal, I guess his donkey, and took him to an inn, paid the innkeeper to take care of the man, and said, now, if there's anything else that arises, any other costs, then you know, I'll be passing back through and I'll pay for this guy. Wow, okay? Um, that's what we're about, that's justice. Justice is not about systems and all of this other stuff you know, where we have the oppressed and oppressors. You and I are responsible to be kind and loving to people, right? Um, in the prophets, right? Uh, Malachi, uh, not, 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 not Micah, said, uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice. 
treat people fairly. Treat people not as though they were less than you. Honor them above yourself, that's love. Treat them with courtesy and kindness. That's what we should be all about, right? Um, so a church shouldn't be a house divided, but all too often that is the case. Churches, even whole denominations, may be divided over theology. You have theologies of Calvinism, dispensationalism, uh, particular doctrinal things like tongues. Uh, there's, a th there's a theological movement called the, the unity uh, movement in the church, and this is it's actually an old heresy. It refuses to recognize that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I won't get into all of that. Uh, legalism, like churches that focus on dietary laws and Sabbath keeping. What I'm saying is that these are uh, movements that divide people, right? If you're not speaking in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. You're not one of us. If you don't worship on Saturday and keep the Sabbath, then you're not one of us. And you're, uh, these are issues that are divisive and they're not even obviously taught in Scripture. But, you know, people take a hold of that point of theology or that doctrinal distinctive and they make it the number one thing rather than love, rather than following Jesus. And as a result, uh, there's division. Churches and de denominations today may divide over moral issues like homosexuality, gender, or abortion. Churches divide over political issues or political candidates. I follow Trump. I follow Biden. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm a patriot. I'm a progressive, right? And this divides people. Churches divide over worship style, traditional versus contemporary music, for example. Churches divide because leaders divide them due to selfish ambition. If we are divided, we will not be effective in reaching the world with the gospel. And right now, I just, I see this. Christians in our day should be willing to lay aside the peripherals. We can have our doctrinal distinctives, right? You can be a part of a church where there are times in the church where everybody just rumbles and speaks in tongues, right? And that's your, that's your, your church, okay? That's cool. That's not gonna be where I'm gonna go. But that doesn't mean that I don't believe that that is a gift that, uh, that still exists in the church, right? You can be in a church where people get up and run around with streamers and all of that other stuff. You can be in a church where people just sit still. They're very, very quiet, but they're very intellectual in their you know, approach to things and they're taking tons of notes. These are just different styles of worship and learning and growing, okay? Like attracts like. I have often said that churches follow uh, human personality. So your personality, right, is comprised of uh, three, we call them domains, okay? The cognitive domain, that's thinking. The affective domain with an A, that's feeling. And the behavioral domain, that's doing. Think about churches. You go to certain Baptist churches, they're doers. That's the behavioral domain. Do, 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 do. We're going to have 19 different mission trips and we're going to have a building program and do, 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 right? And then you got the, the church that's, you know, that's all about worship. You get to church and it's an hour of musical worship. And you're like, oh, I'm ready to go home. And the preaching hasn't even started yet, right? But that's, it's very, very emotive. You know, the, the type of church where, you know, people run around in church or they, they cry out or all of these sorts of things. The effective domain. This is the church that follows that particular uh, point or part, I should say, of human personality. And then the cognitive domain. These are the churches that have, you know, 
notes and notebooks and they have classes on theology and you know doctrine and all of these sorts of things and you know people are just really into that and interested in that chances are you are comprised of all three of those domains right not one all three but there's one that is probably more dominant than the other two and you're probably drawn to groups of people that are similar to you right if you're a more feeling-oriented person, you're drawn to a more feeling-oriented group. If you're a more cerebral person, you're drawn to a more intellectually-oriented group. If you're a more behavioral, hey man, we just need to get up and do stuff, right? Then you're drawn to the church with 18 mission trips a year and you know the various uh, activities that they have going on. I mean, there are churches that have so many activities and plans and programs, they just wear you out. But that's, some people are like, they just don't feel like they're doing church unless they're out doing something constantly, right? Um, the problem arises when people divide. We need to understand one another, okay? And so while I wouldn't really want to be in a church that had a three-hour worship service with a lot of overt emotionalism, that doesn't mean that as long as they're theologically aligned with Scripture, they believe Jesus is God's only son and the Bible is his word, that I can't you know, get along with that group of people and uh, support that group of people and what they're doing or cooperate with them in some mission or ministry or whatever. Um, and I hope it would be the same with us. But today, if you're a genuine Christian, then I think that we need to learn to put these debatable issues that have been historically debated in the church to the periphery and focus on following Jesus, man. The world is coming apart at the seams. And you know, there was a time when, you know, somebody like Billy Graham, the guy was a uniter. He was able to unite all of these different groups around the gospel. All Billy Graham ever did was preach the gospel. He didn't preach politics, he preached the gospel. I watched him preach Richard Nixon's funeral, and there were five or six, I can't remember, living presidents sitting as far as from me to that pew. And all Billy Graham did was preach the gospel. That's all he did. And that's all he ever did. That's what evangelical means. Now it's a political term. Nonsense. We need to focus on Jesus and focus on the gospel and unite. And if there are points of disagreement, we can agree to disagree, okay? I'm not a Calvinist, and I fervently disagree with certain points of Calvinism. But see, a lot of those people really, really honor God and love Jesus. And so I'm not going to divide myself from them. I'm not a dispensationalist, right? You might not even know what that is, <laughs> but there are whole churches that that follow that movement, it's really about interpreting the Bible and it's, it's about end times, essentially, okay? Um, but I can get along with those folks as long as, you know, they're not so focused on that that they, uh, you know, are unwilling to get along with me, that is. Um, so all of these things, you know, we, we just really, really need to learn to get along. And if we're within this church, um, I mean, I'm not aware of divisions in our church currently, but I, I couldn't say that there wouldn't be any or aren't any. We just need to le learn to put our personality you know, conflicts aside. I know we have different people with different political stands in our church. Um, and we have really 
you know, per, done a pretty good job of weathering the storm of, you know, politics and, um, and protests and so forth. But I'm telling you what, this pandemic has really caused problems. I mean, it's really caused division and problems and uh, people have come back, but you know, again, we've got to learn to get along with one another. The, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, the face mask and the non-face mask, the people that think this is not a big deal and the people that think this is the end of the world. We've got to, I'm just trying to preach the gospel, right? And I'm trying to preach confidence in Christ and help you to be able to receive that and move forward with your, with your life, right? And this is the interesting statement that I read earlier. Um, the Apostle Paul says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, if you hold to the truth, the truth is a two-edged sword. And when you swing a sword, anything in the way of the sword gets divided, okay? It's like, you know, if there's a group of people standing here and I swing a sword down the middle of them, they're going to run to either side of it, right? And that's the nature of the truth. The word of God is a two-edged sword. It's going to divide. Be sure you come down on the correct side. So although I'm saying that we need to focus on the gospel and get along and put peripheral issues to the side, I am not saying that we all just need to get along no matter what. No, I'm going to preach that Jesus Christ is God's one and only son, period. I'm going to preach that the Bible is God's word and a plain reading of the Bible is the basis for our fellowship. And if people are going to come with all sorts of other imported ideas, different moralities, different ideas about sexuality and gender and so forth, then I'm going to uh, politely, I hope, but firmly say, no, that's wrong. That is wrong. Uh, you know, we've had transgender folks come to this church and both Mary and I, one individual that I'm talking to, have spoken to this person and said, this is, this is not who you are. We didn't say, we hate you, get out of this church. Okay? We had a young man in this church that was, uh, he served here for, for actually literally years, from the time he was in high school until he was uh, early 20s. And he struggled with homosexuality. And he really, really sought to align his life with the Word of God, but he encountered... Um, a group of people that started telling him uh, there's there's no problem with being homosexual and I'm not talking about uh, being same-sex attracted or something I'm talking about somebody who is living an active sexual lifestyle with the same sex right but these folks told him there's no problem with with that it's it's perfectly compatible with Christian faith it is not and so you know I didn't kick the guy out of church, but he couldn't be in leadership any longer. And he finally found that he just didn't fit here any longer because I'm not going to stop preaching that that is not God's plan for our lives. So what you're going to find is when you stand up for the truth, people that don't want to receive that are going to run away. They're going to reject that, right? So that's the, the, the verse there. Um, the reality is some people are not genuine followers of Jesus. Uh, the disingenuous will, will always seek like-minded people and form their own groups. And this may be a denomination or an individual church. 
and we must be on the lookout for this. And we have no obligation to give comfort and shelter to those who, when the truth is told, are actually opposed to the leadership of Christ. Many churches today are merely fellowships of like-minded people politically, or they're gatherings of those in the same socioeconomic or ethnic group. The focus is not Jesus in that church. It's a social club. The basis of the church, that I'm, this type of church I'm speaking of, is not the Bible. These are not part of the church as Christ established it. This church will avoid fellowship with, such, uh, with anybody that speaks the truth. And our church will avoid fellowship with fraudulent and apostate groups. And so should you. Uh, these groups will not last. They will really, you just watch them. They're, they'll fall apart. They'll implode. They'll disband. They'll fail. They become absorbed into the godless world with its antichrist culture. I can remember in the early 2000s, there was this significant movement of churches that were roughly called the emergent church. You don't hear that anymore because they were just really left-leaning groups of people who were moving further and further away from evangelicalism and those churches have just been absorbed into the world. It's like, if there's nothing different between you and the world, then you're just in the world. Why go to church, right? So we must extend love and acceptance to everyone, but we must also hold to the truth. Speak the truth and love. We leave the door open for those who repent to return. The young man I'm talking about, welcome to return. But we're not going to promote that lifestyle or consider that it is what God is leading us to or leading us to teach other people, right? We're gonna leave the door open. We're gonna make ourselves available for those who want to return, who want to repent, who want to follow Jesus. Um, when people divide from us over central issues, then we have to allow it, friends. Uh, this is, you know, we're fixing to do a Rick Warren study. Uh, Rick Warren has a famous statement where uh, in the early days of his mega, mega church, uh, Saddleback, uh, he was talking about reaching out and evangelism, and he had people say, and I've heard this too, well, before we go reach out to new people, we need to go get all the old people that left. And Rick Warren said, no, we don't. We absolutely do not. That's not what we want. Listen, the door is always open, but I'm not going to go chasing people around. I'll find out, you know, I'll try to find out, you know, what's going on. You okay? Is everything all right? Well, I'm mad at you, preacher, because you said this. Okay. If it's a personality issue, I'm sorry. But if it's a point of theology, if you're mad, I remember we had uh, some visitors one time and uh, I just happened to talk about Mormonism that morning. And the lady was had a history in Mormonism. And she was just irate that I didn't consider Mormons to be authentic Christians. Well, honestly, Mormons can be the nicest people in the world, but Mormonism is not an authentic Christianity. Not at all. If you want to know the truth, Muslims have a better idea of who God is than Mormons do. Mormons may have this, you know, these pictures that look like the Jesus that you and I worship, because we have these, you know, associations, you know, Jesus looks like that, right? Or he looks like that. And so they have these, you know, Sunday school pictures and they use the same words. But Mormonism is actually polytheism. You know what that word means? It means they worship many gods. Actually, they only worship one, but they believe in many gods. It's even worse. They believe you can become a god. Not a child of God. God. Right? 
There's a strong Mormon belief that the, there's a very real possibility that the God of this world, our planet, was once Adam. And he worked his way into the job. Does that sound remotely like Christianity to you? Now, I'm not trying to be mean. But this lady got offended. She got mad. And so she and, you know, her, uh, I guess it was her spouse, left and didn't come back. Well, I want him to come back. But I'm not going to go and say, oh, I'm sorry I said that. No. If I said it in a way that was, you know, hateful or trying to sound like I'm better than them or something, then I would apologize for that. But I'm not going to apologize for preaching the truth, right? That's just the truth. But see, if you avoid certain issues, then you can keep people in the church. So I have to constantly say, well, what issues are really valid to address and what issues are just going to stir people up for no apparent reason, right? That's the constant struggle with any of us today. We cannot compromise, for instance, theologically, we can't comp cannot compromise the deity and full humanity of Christ. And concerning moral issues, accountability is important in a church. And this is why the Apostle Paul called, uh, <clears throat> called the Corinthians out about accepting the man who was involved sexually with his father's wife. You remember back in chapter 5. They were proud of their open-mindedness and acceptance of this man, but Paul made a decision for them. Expel the immoral brother. If people had formed a group to support this man in his immorality, then they would have needed to leave the church as well. So we have to look theologically and morally, and we have to uphold those ideas, right? Um, and then uh, we, we'll talk about this more next week. I told you I was just going to cover these two verses. But the example that he gives is how they were treating the Lord's Supper. Um, the issue was with this division within the church economically and those who were bringing their own food and their own wine and gathering in their own little clique over here and the poor people who were just being left out over here. But the bigger problem <clears throat> was that they were disrespecting the table of the Lord. So we'll talk about that um, next week. So yeah, it's eight o'clock and that's good. And hopefully we'll all love each other and treat each other with justice and kindness, right? And um, we'll hold to our faith strongly in a culture that is counter to that. All right. God bless you guys. God bless you online.